Let's give God some praise for the church choir this morning. Excellent job. Good job, good job. Join me in the book of Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. That was some good stuff there. I don't know who taught y'all that, but that was nice. You got the Jesus in you? I think you got a little God in you, boy. You saying that thing. <laughs> great job. Great solos. Both of you, great job. Exodus chapter 3. Let me begin reading at verse 10, and I'll conclude at verse 15. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel. And I shall say to them, the God of your fathers have sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Amen. You may be seated. As we began on last Sunday, a journey just looking at several different names to which particularly the Old Testament admonishes in relation to God. We started in the book of Genesis, which introduced us to the English definition or probably better said description of of the divine by way of the usage of the name God. Genesis 1 introduced us to what we located in the very first four words of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the Hebrew name of God as Elohim, the creator, the strong one, the mighty one, the strong tower the God who reveals himself personally, the God who relates to his creation, and the God who releases his promise. There's a second name which I want to introduce you to that I find, but the name actually appears in the book of Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. And the verse reads this way, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created 
in the day that the Lord God made heaven and earth. The name is found in the phrase, Lord God. It is joined together with Elohim, and the word Lord is a translation from the Hebrew word, Jehovah. We want to lift up this name, Jehovah, this morning, which comes from the Hebrew verb, Hava, which means to be or being. It has close relativeness to the Hebrew verb Shava, which means life or to live. In other words, the verb form of Jehovah means that God is always imparting life unto us and God is in himself life. The noun form of the word says that God is self-existing. That means that God doesn't have to reach out to find out who God is. God is who God is internally and that God in himself possesses all of the essentials for not only life but even in defining life. Therefore God is Jehovah the self-existing God who gives life to us, which is the reason why every morning when we arise to the newness of a day, we should lift our eyes unto the God who gave life, who not only protected us and watched over us all night long, but you do know that someone didn't see the new morning this morning and there's reason why you are alive this morning there's reason why you are in the house of worship and there's a reason why you have breath to praise God and the breath has been imparted because the God we serve is a life giving God in the giving of his breath, remember in Genesis chapter 1, he breathed into man his creation, the breath of life, and man became the living being. He ruach, that's the Arabic word, he spoke, he pushed, he placed his own being into all of us. And as a result of that, when we wake up in the morning, it's a new day because God has given us a fresh breath of life once again. And when we sit down to eat a meal, you really should not partake of that meal without looking unto God who provided the life of the meal and say, Lord, I thank you for another meal. Bless this food that it might give me all that I need because you are the God who is a life giver. If you know that God has given you life this morning, why don't you give him some praise and say, Lord, I thank you for the life you've given me this morning. I want us to understand that God is not an abstract image. That simply means that God is not something or even someone out in space hovering around in which we merely can look out and hopefully take a glimpse of who God is. But instead, God is an ever-abiding presence. 
God is such an abiding presence that he's knowable. That means that God says no matter where you look, you can see my fingerprint on all creation. In fact, you don't even have to look at another being, another human being, although that's the crown of my creation. But if you just step back and look at life in itself, look at creation, look at the trees and the grass and the birds that fly in the sky and look at the sky and look at the sun, look at the stars at night, look at the moon, look at how the wind blows. God says everywhere that you look, you can see that I am knowable. That's the reason why... Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that man will not be able to stand before God and claim that I had no idea who you are or even if you were in the world because Paul says when you look around God is evident every single place that you place your eyes. It's critical to understand about this name Jehovah because the Hebrews considered a name to be the embodiment of the person who's bearing it. In other words, it's not just in nature, but they are trying to tell us that God also relates to the people when we understand the power of the name in which the text is using. So there's a great story here in Exodus and how Jehovah is identified in the story. It's a wonderful historical story that has a great contemporary application. If you've never taken the time to at least read the first three chapters of Exodus, it's a marvelous piece of literature. The first chapter in its opening begins with a political power structure that is threatened by the growth of the minority. You can almost see the parallel in this historical text, even in relation to the current contemporary political climate that we are a part of. You see the power structure that is threatened by the minority people who are growing and multiplying, who are growing by leaps and bounds, says the text. And then it says there is now a new Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. So the previous Pharaoh, who had experience with Joseph because he had appointed Joseph prime minister in his kingdom. That Pharaoh has died along with Joseph and now a new generation is experiencing a new Pharaoh who's threatened by the growth development even not only numerically by the people but which the people in growth in terms of their economic and social involvement is growing in the state of Egypt. So much so that the Pharaoh became threatened by this new generational growth and decided that he would use his political power to shut down the growth, supposedly, of this minority growing Hebrews. Not understanding that he wouldn't shut them down even if he used political power because they were growing, says the text, by leaps and bounds because God was giving them an increase. They were economically being empowered. They were recognizing that they had potential and the power to grow themselves. They were politically recognizing that if they got themselves involved in the local politics that they could make a change. And Pharaoh felt that the best way to quiet them was to impose physical slavery. 
and that is exactly what he did in the text. He imposed not only physical slavery to the Hebrews, but he also imposed genocide to the male gender. He argued that every Hebrew child born, particularly male, under the age of two years old, must be killed because if you kill the seed, then you kill the growth of life. And you ought to be aware that there are some things and some people, some policies, some objectives that desires to kill the seed that lives on the inside of you, the seed that gives you growth and life, the seed that secures your future, the seed that will make sure that you have a legacy to leave, the seed that makes sure that you will have a lineage to tie yourself to, and there's an objective to cut you off from the history because if you cut off this seed, it has no history to refer to. And Pharaoh knew that if I could cut them off from their history, if I can cut them off from knowing who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was, I will not only destroy them now, but I will make sure they will have no future. You ought to hear what I'm saying. Because if you can read between the lines and you just sit there and think about what's happening now in our political climate, there's an objective to destroy the seed because there's a threat felt by one group of another that if they continue to grow, we're going to have a major problem. But what they didn't understand was because God creates all and God is the father of all and God is the mother of all and because God's children is God's children, when they gave this word to the Hebrew midwives, the Bible says that the midwives said, listen, we serve a God who is so powerful and who is the center of our lives that we are not going to obey Pharaoh. In other words, they're saying God is bigger than Pharaoh. God is bigger than Egypt. God is bigger than the White House. God is bigger than anybody who sits in there. And the God that I serve, that's who I'm going to obey. And the Bible says that they let the Hebrew boys live and Pharaoh became angry and said, why did you do this? And they said, because we don't serve you. We serve the God who breathes into us the breath of life and makes us alive every single day. Then we're introduced in chapter 2 to the birth of a Hebrew, eventually prophet kind of leader who is born from a priestly family. The Bible says that he is born into this priestly family who were still under the genocide edict of chapter 1, verse 22. A child is born, and watch how God works. Even though Pharaoh, watch this now, Pharaoh has an objective to kill the Hebrew children, particularly males from two below, and particularly those who are new in terms of birth, God preserved this one Hebrew child whose mother built a small ark, placed him in it, put him in the Nile, and watch how God worked. Of all people who came down to the Nile to bathe, it was Pharaoh's daughter 
who saw this child in this basket and watch this talk you how God worked to you how Jehovah is the self-existing one and the one who doesn't need to make sure that anybody else confirms who he is God moves in such that everybody will know who he is he moves on Pharaoh's daughter to pick up this child out of this basket and if that wasn't good enough guess who it was standing there as Pharaoh's daughter Maiden Moses sister whom God put in position to make sure that when Pharaoh's daughter pulls Moses out of the river he gives her or she gives him to his sister and if that ain't good enough when Pharaoh's daughter says now take him back and nourish him guess what she does takes him back to mama his very birth mama and then she says tell her I will pay her to take care of this child not only did she give birth but she got paid even to take care of her own child I'm talking about a God who can make a way out of no way and when you think it's impossible don't you discredit or discount God because God is at work even when you don't even see him at work he's working behind the scenes working all things together for the good for you if you can just wait on the Lord and be of good courage he will work it out do I got a witness in here that God has worked some things out for you you wasn't for sure how it was going to work out and you kind of thought that the door was shut in your face but here comes God opening a door that you thought was shut using somebody you didn't think that God would use and even the enemy who tries to destroy you God will use them and make them your footstool I'm talking about Jehovah who can make a way out of no way for you And if that ain't good enough, not only did he make sure that he was preserved and put him in the Nile, not only did God use Pharaoh's daughter to make sure that Moses was rescued, not only did Moses be captured by his own sister and given back to his own mother, but then God had the bad audacity to cause Pharaoh's daughter to give him a name. Let's call him Moses because I drew him out of the water. My God. Listen to what God is saying. God will not only rescue you, but I will make you so blessed that I'll make your enemy give you a name that they never even imagined they would have to give you. She called him Moses. Can you understand that? He gets a name from the household of his enemy. Moses. Because I drew him out of the water. My God, I feel like preaching that this morning. So the child is raised, raised in the household of Pharaoh, raised in the household of Pharaoh and in the state of being privileged. He's privileged because he has the best of an education. He has the most advantageous position in terms of trying to help his people politically and socially. But even growing up as a privileged child, what got him into trouble was the very concern that he had about his own people. He comes out one day and observed that there is an Egyptian assaulting a Hebrew. Moses messed around and lost 
his concentration in terms of his citizenship and his privilege as a Hebrew in the Egyptian kingdom and killed the Egyptian. Quote unquote contemporary lingo, Moses caught a case and the popo was on his trail. When Moses caught this case, he had to get out of town because the Bible says that Pharaoh came and began to put a search warrant out for Moses because Moses had committed a capital offense. He had killed an Egyptian. And even though Moses was privileged in the household of Pharaoh, Moses was still a Hebrew. And by being a Hebrew, he still fell under the rules that govern the Hebrews. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, tells us that after Moses caught this case, he is now moving from being a man of material wealth to becoming a man who has to manage his life in the wilderness. And while he's out there, he gets the opportunity to be introduced to God not just as Elohim, the creator, but to God as Jehovah, the God who sustains and the God who provides. Because you remember, when we start using the name Jehovah, the self-existing one, it becomes compound to various other descriptions of who God is. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who will provide. Jehovah Shalom, the God who gives peace. Jehovah Rapha, the God who can heal you. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner. We get to be introduced to this diverse element of who God is, but Moses is going to find out who God is to a point that when I read the text, I came up with this subject, Lord, what's your name this time? Because not only was it creator, I saw that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, but now I'm introduced to God in a new fashion, something different that I haven't seen before because now the people have never needed to be liberated like they are now. So Moses is banished to this wilderness. And Moses is a kind of type of us. We catch a case of some kind, doesn't have to be legally, but we catch a case where our life is being attacked by life in itself. And we catch a case of being flooded with fear and concern, and we are almost banished so we feel into a wilderness because trying to cope in the real world becomes troublesome sometimes. And I need an escape route. I need an escape route to take me to a place where I can find some solace and some sense of restoration. But Moses is on the run. He's not trying to find solace and he's not trying to find restoration. He's running from the popo that he not be arrested 
and then be incarcerated or even worse since it's a capital offense take his life for who he is so he's out in the wilderness he's in a desert he's in a space where it's barren and empty and nobody seems to be out there but Moses and yet Moses now must learn to manage his wilderness his desert he shifts from being at the table to now he's preparing tables. He shifts from having servants to now being a servant. Moses, though unbeknown to him, is now being introduced to God as protector, God as provider, God as preserver. If Moses were here, I'm convinced that he would tell us that I, I saw God as protector in the wilderness, but as I look back over my life, God was protecting me all along. When Pharaoh sought to destroy me, God preserved me, protected me. When God allowed me to grow up in the house of Pharaoh, so to preserve me that I might even have this wilderness moment. When I caught the case, I ran away and Pharaoh could have made sure that I didn't get out of town, but I'm convinced God opened the door for me to escape because God had a bigger plan for my life. How many of us know that when we think about where we've come from and the things that we have come through, we can see God's signature all over where we have come, realizing that if it hadn't been for God intervening to make sure that this didn't destroy me and that didn't destroy me and this didn't turn my life down, but instead it became a building block for my journey. And I see that I am where I am because I serve a God who has protected me all over the course of my journey. So Moses is going to see that God has not only protected him because God allowed him to get into the desert and not be incarcerated or be killed by capital punishment. But he's also going to see that God is his provider. Remember, he come from now the Egyptian household where he has everything provided for him, but now he has nothing. He's in the wilderness with nothing. He's lost everything that he had previously. And yet, look what God does. God makes sure, because he was a fighter in Egypt, God used his same skill to get him a job in the wilderness. Read the story, you'll find out that there were Midianite merchants who came up, thugs we would probably call them, while the daughters of Jephro were there feeding the flock, trying to get water. These thugs came up and sort of sought to steal, take their water from them. And I just don't think it just so happened that Moses was in the region. I think that God purposely designed where Moses was right where he needed to be because God said, all right, you want to act like a thug yourself and fight in Egypt, I got just a fight for you. 
I got some Midianites who are trying to bogart these sisters from their water. I want you to be right there to fight the battle. And the Bible says that Moses, when he saw them, he stepped up and pretty much wiped the brothers out, moved them out of the situation. They got off and ran. And the sister said, now that's what I'm talking about right there. I need a brother who can fight for a sister. In fact, when he stood up to fight, the Bible says they ran back home and told Daddy Jeffro everything that happened. And Daddy said, where you at? Why didn't you invite them home? When something good like that happened, you don't let them go off. You invite them home that we might pay homage and give them some respect. In fact, Daddy said, go back and find him. Bring him back here and watch what God does. They go back and find Moses and brings him back to the house of Jephro. And Jephro says, you know what? Because you got skills, I want you to lead my flock, take care of my sheep. And watch this. I am convinced that God said, because you're in the wilderness don't you ever think that I'm gonna let you go remember I am always with you wherever you go and even in the wilderness God made sure that Moses had everything that he needed somebody in the house this morning know what it means to be pushed out into the wilderness where you lost everything you had but yet you didn't go hungry yet you didn't go homeless yet you didn't go without because God made sure you had everything that you need it may have required somebody to give it to you but it doesn't matter God made sure you never went without I'm talking about God as a provider who will make sure you get everything that you need so God moves in his life and a Midianite priest watch this show you how God at work again do you think it's just happenstance that the sisters that Moses ran into in the wilderness just happened to be the daughter of a priest and Moses is from a priestly household as well I'm trying to tell you wherever you go God's got somebody who will make sure that you get what you need a priest is introduced to the daughters of another priest and the priest gives Moses a job and the job is shepherding the sheep and in shepherding the sheep God is at work in making sure that Moses understand you might think you working this thing out for yourself but I got my hand all over this and I'm gonna show you in a minute so he not only protects him and provides for him but he preserves him Moses when he got ran out of Egypt left his mama behind his daddy behind his sisters behind his whole entire family behind when he gets into the wilderness God shows himself to be a preserver to Moses life as well he not only meets the daughters of a Midianite priest but Jephro ends up giving Sephora to Moses and he marries her so when he left Egypt he didn't have a family but now that he's in the wilderness look what God does gives him another family he preserves to make sure that Moses has a family who will assure his future lineage and will also demonstrate his abiding presence 
no matter where Moses is going. In other words, Moses is witnessing Jehovah Jireh while he already knows God as Elohim, the creator. God is not only providing, but God's going to preserve Moses as well. Now God, if this ain't enough, God is going to orchestrate a meeting with Moses. So when you read chapter 3, God is working a meeting out where he's going to show Moses how he is Jehovah Yahweh, still the self-existing one. But the relational God who wants to meet Moses right where he is. He orchestrates how he's going to meet Moses. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, that Moses is pastoring the flock, leading the sheep for Jephro. Now, I, I want you to check out something here because Bishop Taylor, here's another way that God shows you how good he is. Now watch this. Shepherds don't take their sheep far from the house. They keep the sheep close to the house so that if there's a threat in the horizon or if an uh, animal who seeks to come and steal and kill the sheep, when they see that threat, they can quickly move them back into safety. But read verse 1 closely. It says that Moses took the sheep and led them through the valley on the other side. You didn't get that. Listen to what I'm saying. Let me tell you again. Moses took the sheep that were close to the house and led them on the other side of the mountain for grazing. Now there's plenty of grazing right there at the house. But Moses, says the text, led the flock to the west side of the wilderness. I'm convinced that Moses didn't do that. God led Moses to lead the sheep to the other side, west side of the wilderness that he can position him right there at the mountain where God was going to meet him. See, in other words, whenever God takes you to a strange place, and God will do that because notice, now again, there's plenty of grazing right here at the house. Why is he going to go all the way on the west side of the wilderness to graze? Because when God is leading you and when God wants a meeting with you, he's got to get you away from home. Get you to a place where you and he are all alone by yourselves. Look at the text. It says in verse 1, he led him and he came to Horeb the mountain of God. What is God doing? God is driving Moses to this place because God is preparing Moses for a task that Moses is going to have as liberator and leader and God is using his shepherding skills to prepare him to shepherd the people. God's got you where he is or where you are rather because God is going to use your skill where you are to prepare you to do ministry where you're going. God drives him 
And maybe God is driving you through the wilderness that you may demonstrate and experience the desire to be relational with God because you feel alone. Now, can you only imagine Moses is in the wilderness, but notice in verse, in chapter 1 and 2, we never hear anything about Moses having a conversation with God. Instead, God says, okay, I got to get your attention. I got to make sure you understand I'm in control of this. And he brings him to this mountain where he meets Moses and God meets Moses and Moses meets God face to face. In this desert place, he's showing Moses that he is Jehovah Yahweh, the power and the character of the being who possess life. Remember, God, even in your wilderness, is still protecting you. God is still providing for you. God is still preserving you. And God just wants to meet you and assure you that he has heard your cry and about to break through for you if you're willing to wait on him. Now watch this. Moses had to get to know God privately before he could talk about God publicly. That's what this wilderness experience is all about. God's got you where he needs you to be because perhaps you haven't talked to him lately. Because when you get caught up in the challenges of life, when you get overwhelmed with what's going on, we almost forget to pray other than have a prayer that makes us sound as if we are desperate. And we are. But God tells Moses, I want you to come and talk with me. Meet me where I am. And the Bible says that when Moses got to the mountain of God, God appeared, verse 2, chapter 3, as an angel. Now, here's the glory about this. It's not really an angel. I am convinced it's what we call a theophany. It's God coming in the form of an angel to talk with Moses. Oh, he could have just simply spoke to Moses out of the heavens, but God wanted him to see something that would blow Moses' mind. So the Bible says when Moses gets to the Mount of Horeb, he turns and looks and he sees a bush burning, but the bush don't burn up. You got to think about that for a moment. A bush burning, but the bush doesn't burn up. In other words, God introduces Moses to his miraculous power before he gets to meet the miraculous person. He sees a bush burning, but the bush is not burning up. It's God, the self-existing one, in the bush illuminating in his glory and it caught Moses attention says the text so much so that Moses stood there wondering this can't be true this bush cannot be burning and yet it is not burning up but then says the Bible God called out of the bush and says Moses I got you where I wanted you I wanted to meet you face to face right here where you are, but listen to me. Take off your shoes. 
because the ground that you are approaching is holy ground. Lord, why do I need to take off my shoes? You, you saw the bush. That's a miracle. But to meet the miraculous person, you got to stand on holy ground. You got to stand to a place where God says that he must inform Moses that he's going to be with him and use him as the liberator of Israel. Moses says, that all sounds good, Lord, but I just want you to know that I'm not really qualified for this job. In fact, God says to Moses in the text, in verse 6, I'm the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but Moses gets a glimpse of the miraculous person and hides his face, says the text. You know he can't look directly at God because later in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 20, I think it is, God tells Moses, if I let you see me, I got to kill you. You can't see my holiness and yet live. And I think it's because the radiance of all of God's glory is too strong for human eyes. You couldn't handle all that glory. So God says, Moses, because I love you so much, I'll just let you see my backside. In this instance, God says, Moses, I'll let you see me as an angel. And he hears the words of God come out of this bush and the Bible says that God says to Moses in verse 7 of chapter 3 of Exodus, I have surely seen the affliction of my people and I'm calling you because I am aware of their suffering and I want you to be their deliverer. And the Bible says in verse 11 that Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Who am I, Lord, that I should go to Pharaoh? And look at the text, verse 12. God says, I'm going to be with you, but I'm going to give you a sign. When you bring them out, we're going to come right back to this same mountain where you met me, and we're going to worship together. All right, you're not feeling me? Here it is, verse 13. Behold, Lord, I'm going to the sons of Israel. Here's what I came to tell you. I'm going to the sons of Israel. And I'm going to say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me. Now they may say to me, and what is his name? Who, who is that God? What do I say to them? Just tell them I am who I am. What? does that phrase mean God you are who you are and what is that supposed to mean to us very clearly says God you tell them in the condition that they're in whatever they need for me to be that's who I am So I, I just came by to tell somebody this morning, you might be in your wilderness or you may have come to a place where God has moved you to the burning bush 
and you're noticing the glory of God all around you, but you can't actually see God, and you're wondering where God is in the midst of all of this movement, but yet you can hear the word of God, I am who I am, and who are you, God? What do you need for me to be? Your friend in the wilderness? Your lawyer in the courtroom? Your doctor in the sick room? Your bridge over the troubled water? Do you need for me to be your bread because you're hungry and your water because you're thirsty? Do you have a thorn in your side and you need some grace that will see you through? You've fallen down and fallen out and you have gotten to a space where you're out of fellowship. Do you need some mercy? I am whoever you need for me to be. Do you need some guidance in your darkness and some hope in your hopelessness and some joy in your joyless state? I am whoever you need for me to be. And I am just convinced this morning I got some witnesses who will testify he will be whatever you need for him to be. I called on him and I needed him to be my friend. And he showed up. I needed him to be my comfort. And he showed up. I needed some peace. There he was. I needed a calm, a storm calmer. And there he was. I needed a healing. And there he was. I needed some joy. And there he was. He was everything that I needed him to be. Lord, what's your name this time? Because when you go around this room, all of us got a different name to give him. But the main thing is we got a name to give him. And that's what the writer Moses is trying to get us to see. In the midst of that, God will do so. And says the text, God tells Moses, that's my name. Look at verse 15. You tell them that this is my name and it's my name forever. And I expect for it to go from generation to generation. And we are shouting this morning because our grandparents told us about this name. Oh, they didn't use Jehovah. They didn't use that fancy name that we're using. But, but they knew who he was. A friend that's sticking closer than a brother. They knew who he was. The walking stick in the wilderness. They knew exactly who he was. And they knew that God would be all that God needed them to be right where they were. And that's my word this morning. I don't care where you are, what you're going through. God will be who you need God to be. Maybe you think that your life is to a point where you're too far away from God. God is so gracious that not only is he where you are, but his loving arm stretches around and will bring you back to where you need to be. You might think that your sin is so overwhelming, your disobedience is so outlandish that there's absolutely no way in the world that God can forgive you because of what you've done. God could care less about what you have done because God is more concerned about you receiving his forgiveness to release yourself from the guilt of what you have done. That's the glorious thing about grace. It helps me get rid of my own guilt, although my sin is covered by God's graciousness. It helps me not fall under the weight of feeling guilty all of the time, but to take the freedom that God has given me and set me free as a result of his grace and mercy. And that's where some people find themselves, they struggle because they are overwhelmingly struggling with guilt. Let it go. 
God let it go when he forgave you. Let it go. Free yourself. He who the Son has set free is free indeed. Stop carrying your cross when Jesus already boarded at the cross. Already took it to the hill. They've taken him down. He arose for the sake of giving you the newness of life. Jehovah, the self-existing one, protects, provides, and preserves. And he's doing that so you can be his living witness to tell somebody else who's in their wilderness and who's seeing the bush which is God's gracious presence to let you know life ain't over. That's the reason why the bush is not consumed. It's burning, but it's still alive. It's still alive because as long as God is alive, because God is the life giver, then you've always got hope. You've always got hope. Lord, somebody today, I pray in your name, needs to know that you are the God who lives 